Warning, sexual violence will be extensively discussed within this podcast. Welcome back to Defining Deviant Podcast. I am a little late in getting this episode out as I received my second vaccine recently and it knocked me on my butt quite badly so I needed to take a couple days for rest. This week I am going to jump into human sexuality more generally and talk a little bit about the structure and function of human genitalia. You'll see across this podcast that although I focus a lot on sexual violence, I'm also going to introduce a lot of human sexuality and sexual education. So the human body, of course, I would say is quite fascinating, but there are no parts that fascinate us more than the sexual organs. Many of us have a curiosity about them, but also through our experience, our interactions, we may have an equally strong tendency to deny that interest or to be quite ashamed of it, to be honest. There are a fair number of men, women, and others who've engaged in intercourse or other sexual activities who may have never actually looked at their own genitals. And it's not uncommon in the sexuality courses that I've taught. For most of us, we have some working knowledge of sexual anatomy, but it's also important to not only know anatomy for the purposes of their function, but also to understand how that structure and function may be relevant to sexual functions and also sexual satisfaction. Part of my wanting to educate around sexuality is to increase the appreciation for sexual arousal and pleasure because sex positivity or sex therapy, a lot of what we focus on is enhancing those facets of sexuality rather than focusing on the shame associated with sexuality or essentially restricting activities. Today I'm going to talk about the anatomy, which is the structures of the genitalia, but also their physiology. So it describes where the action of that anatomy is taking place. Starting with the biologically male sexual system, because it is simpler in many ways, we can see that this system is meant to produce hormones and sperm, as well as actually providing the physical mechanism for transporting sperm to the presumed receptacle of the sperm, which would be, in evolutionary sense, the vagina of the human woman. If we break it down into the specific structures, and we start with the scrotum, the scrotum is a multi-layered pouch which contains and somewhat, but not to a great extent, protects the testes. The scrotum has several layers to it, and its thin outermost layer is usually a little bit darker than the rest of the body, and it has many, many sweat glands. During puberty, this area will often become covered in hair. Men are known to groom their scrotum hair, essentially, to make themselves more quote-unquote sexually appealing, but of course that will be variable depending on the individual, in both terms of attraction and wanting to do that individually. There are practical reasons at times for doing grooming of the pubic hair, such as wanting to avoid your partners getting hair in their mouth. 
The second layer of the scrotum consists of loosely organized muscle fibers and also fibrous tissues. These fibers are not under voluntary control, but they do react in response to things such as cold or even just uh, knowing that there's a physical sensation coming. So going to sound really odd, but if you have a friend with uh, a scrotum that is willing to let you experiment with it, if you take a pencil and the person is sitting naked and you approach the pencil to their scrotum and they see you coming, their scrotum will run away. So that's a great little experiment from this scientist to you. When individuals with scrotums is experiencing something like cold or sexual excitement, the scrotum will appear more compact and heavily wrinkled because it's essentially trying to scrunch up and maintain its heat. Whereas if the scrotum is quite warm or it's, there's not a lot of sexual excitement going on, the scrotum tends to hang more loose and it's fairly smooth because the skin loosens during that time. Although the scrotum externally looks like a single pouch, it is divided into a right and left compartment, and each of those contain a testy. In terms of context for when some of these things don't develop typically, we do know that the failure for testes to descend do occur in about 1-7% to of births, and this happens because often just one of the testes remains in the abdominal cavity rather than descending. This condition generally will correct itself during the first year, but sometimes the individual will seek clinical intervention either in the form of surgery or hormonal treatment. About one in 500 scrotum owners will still have an undescended testy by adulthood. The main function of the scrotum is to keep the testes cool enough so that the sperm production maintains a normal temperature and that this can allow for procreation to occur again from that evolutionary lens. So through a combination of not having a lot of fat, having a lot of small blood vessels near the surface, having a lot of sweat glands, and also a heat exchange system, this temperature of the scrotum is often kept at about three degrees below normal body temperature for scrotum owners. If it does get excessively cold, such as when individuals go swimming, the scrotal muscles will contract and draw the testes closer to the body core because that area of the body is warmer and it's trying to maintain that static temperature for sperm production. If we jump to the testes, the two testicles are oval-shaped organs that live within one in each of those compartments within the scrotum, and you often see that the left scrotal compartment hangs lower than the right one. And the function of having one of the scrotal compartments hang lower is that it makes walking and crossing the individual's legs often less painful. Or at least that's our guess about why that exists. Each testicle is actually wrapped in this tight, whitish, fibrous sheath, and it's relatively inelastic. And the reason that this matters is if you've ever heard of the condition mumps when there's a lot of swelling and that goes on. This condition has been known to cause infertility in individuals when they experience testicle swelling because that fibrous sheath on top of the testes on the inner layer can't actually move so when the swelling occurs that is where the damage occurs to the testes. 
The testicle itself internally is divided into many conical shaped lobes and this is filled with what are called seminiferous tubules and these are where the male sex cells or the sperm are produced. The system of these seminiferous tubules provides storage space for all of these sperm and if you think about it they are lobes and they wrap around each other if you look at a picture of the testes because then they can allow for the production of all those sperm but also the storage across time. The production of sperm is known as spermatogenesis and this involves a gradual maturation process through a number of stages but important to remember is that the mature sperm from this individual gives half of the genetic material needed. When it combines with other material through fertilization, then it provides the necessary genetic building blocks for a human baby. That is the first major function, is giving that half bit of genetic material for the baby making in evolutionary sense. I say in evolutionary sense throughout this podcast because although I'm focusing on structure and function within the podcasts that we're talking about today, there are so many things that we're going to talk about in the future related to many of these things, um, but related to psychology, related to stigma, related to the trans community, to the intersex community, and I just want to start being clear. The second major function of the testes is to produce the sex hormones, androgens. These are hormones that are chemicals carried throughout the body to different structures and they have an influence on the body. These androgens tend to give more male secondary sexual characteristics. And research has also shown that there are these special sorts of cells also in the testes which are called interstitial cells. And these tend to produce testosterone, which is again one of the major biologically male sex hormones. Other hormones are produced in the testes, including estrogens, uh, but there are less of them. The seminiferous tubules within the testes drain via small channels into a highly coiled duct called the epididymis that lies just outside of the testes. Research is varied, but there is some evidence to suggest that the sperm can live in this chamber for up to six weeks. The sperm that are, you know, less active or less fit to survive tend to be crowded toward the center of the epididymis and they are absorbed there. So this area sort of acts as a selection chamber. The sperm that are fit for survival are transported through the epididymis to the connecting duct of the vas deferens. The vas deferens is the firm cord that goes through the scrotal sac and ascends into the abdomen and it curves around the bladder and narrows to form the ejaculatory duct. This part of the genital duct system is very short and is quite straight and then passes through the prostate gland. The two ejaculatory ducts connect the single urethra, which is the tube that's running from the bladder through the entire length of the penis. The single urethra then serves the dual function of transporting both sperm and urine. If we move to some accessory glands and we just talk about some of the accessory glands I mentioned, 
the prostate gland is a structure that is about the size and shape of a large chestnut and the secretions that come from it make up part of the seminal fluid which is what sperm are swimming in and also are responsible for the characteristic odor of sperm that kind of bleachy smell but can range depending on the individual these secretions contain many substances but many of them focus on one goal, which is neutralizing the acidity of the vagina. And this makes sense because by neutralizing the vagina's acidity, the sperm will better be able to swim. There are also Cowper's glands, or called bulbourethral glands, and these flank the penile urethra. And during sexual arousal, these glands will secrete an alkaline, clear, sticky substance. And again, that alkaline substance is going to play a part in neutralizing the acidity of the vagina in that case. The Cowper's gland fluid does not typically have sperm in it, but sometimes sperm does get into this fluid. Therefore, it is possible for pregnancy to occur even without ejaculation, simply if the penetration of the penis occurs because there are sperm in what is often termed pre-cum. However, this is most likely when individuals are quite young and fertile. If we move to the star of the show, the penis, the penis is traditionally known as the male organ for copulation, and it is composed of three parallel cylinders of spongy tissue. There are two cavernous bodies and one spongy body. When the penis is erect, the spongy body stands out as a distinct ridge on the underside of the penis. These cylinders are made up of irregularly shaped cavities and spaces very much like you'd see in a sponge, and during sexual arousal they become engorged with blood. Once they're engorged, the constriction of those cavities within the tough fibrous tissue causes them to give that stiffness of the penis that people know when an erection occurs. Because there is that tough fibrous tissue, it is technically possible to break an erect penis by suddenly or forcefully bending it because that tissue can rip or tear, which obviously would be quite painful. These accidents, as you would call them, are most common in usually very sexual, unusual circumstances such as sex on a motorcycle, having sex in public, sex during a marital affair, and the reason it's those circumstances is because those individuals are often surprised in that circumstance and do something like try to jump off the individual and jump off in the wrong direction. The smooth round head of the penis is known as the glands and it forms from that spongy body which expands to cover the other cylinders. So essentially the spongy body comes up on the underside of the penis and then grows up and around to form the glands or the head of the penis. The glands is heavily endowed with nerve endings which make it of course quite sensitive as I'm sure you'd expect and the frenulum, which is a tiny strip of tissue connecting the glands to the body of the penis, is a particularly sensitive part. The skin of the penis itself is usually relatively hairless and somewhat loose because this permits expansion during erections, and some of that skin generally comes and folds over and covers the glands, which forms what is known as the foreskin. The foreskin typically is retractable and the glands can be readily exposed, but if the foreskin becomes so tight that it can't be retracted, 
then it can become necessary to actually cut away the foreskin or circumcise the penis, reduce the issues that are going on for that person. If we briefly discuss on psychological aspects, there is a historical and continued intense concern about penis size among many males, and it seems to be a sort of result of a bigger is better philosophy, and we often see that the males portrayed in erotic literature and film often have large penises. I'll bring it up that for pornography specifically, that also makes it easier for them to film, so it's one of the aspects. But we should note that the research does not indicate that women prefer large penises, but 50% of women did feel that width was more important for their satisfaction than length, according to Eisman's 2001 research. And Prouse and colleagues in 2015 did some research that found that Women preferred a penis of slightly larger circumference and length for one time versus long-term sexual partners. And that, of course, may be related to compatibility and what you're looking for in a one-night occurrence in terms of sexual satisfaction versus what you are looking for in sexual satisfaction in, say, a long-term relationship. It should also be pointed out clearly that there is considerable difference in the shape and variability of penises. They can vary anywhere from 2 to 14 inches, and almost all penises still function adequately in intercourse, with the average penis being around 6 inches or 15 centimeters. It's not uncommon at all for individuals to express concerns about the normality of their genitalia, because there's little opportunity to compare genitalia. and individuals are not exposed to such variation in the sources that they're seeing, such as the pornography that they are exposed to. For example, men may see each other nude during phys ed, but it's not polite to stare, so they're not going to do that. If we move to a final aspect that I want to touch on, and something that I'm going to go into a lot more detail later when we talk about sexual assault, specifically sexual assault against biological males, we talk about the erection centers. An erection is initiated by a variety of conditions that can activate the erection center. And the erection center can be activated through nerves in the penis when the penis is touched or through stimulation from the brain, which processes erotic stimulation from other senses. This is really, really important to note that these are two different erection centers that can be tapped into. The first erection center, which is activated through the nerves in the penis when the penis is touched, activates a reflex center in the spinal cord, or the sacral area 2-4, so this is essentially the lower spine near the tailbone, and this is through the parasympathetic system. The second erection center, which I'm talking about, operates through stimulation from the brain, which processes erotic stimulation from other senses, sexual thoughts, and also hormones. This is in a second center in the thoracic or lumbar regions, T11 through L2, the lower back via the sympathetic system. I'm discussing the importance of understanding the two differential aspects of where erections can come from because individuals often question the validity of male sexual assault victims because of the presence of an erection 
and I always bring this out when I talk about erections right away because an individual can be experiencing terrible traumatic emotions and can have their penis physiologically respond because of touch and not in any psychological way want to have that erection and that's just something I want everybody to keep in mind for the future when we are discussing biologically male victims or individuals with a penis. Erections, when they do occur, can be turned off by psychological and emotional factors or too much stimulation. The actual erection results when the arteries that feed blood to the penis dilate and engorge the spongy tissue of the penis. So the blood is still flowing in and out of the penis while it is erect, and there are various devices that can help maintain an erection by essentially cutting off the outflow of the blood from the penis, and that's what those uh, mechanisms often focus on. When the stimulation from sexual arousal is sufficiently intense, the ejaculation centers located in the same areas of the spinal cord as the erection centers will be activated. The fluid then is contributed by those various structures that we talked about and is propelled through the duct system by rhythmic contractions and also contractions at the base of the penis. Although ejaculation and orgasm typically coincide, they can be experienced separately. If we jump from the biologically male-based system to female genitalia, we can start with what is called the mons veneris or the mons pubis. This is the soft rounded pad of fatty tissue that sits over the pubic bone and after puberty it typically becomes covered with hair of varying colors and thickness. Again we have a current cultural context of trimming or shaving the pubic hair among individuals but there is no biological reason for doing so. This area contains many nerve endings which are stimulated by both touch and pressure and can produce sexual excitement. Research shows that many women actually prefer stimulation of this area even over the clitoris which specialized for sexual sensations. We then can move to the labia majora. So when we're talking about these outer structures this is what's known as the vulva. The labia majora or the outer lips, are the two elongated folds of skin that run down and back from the mons pubis. So the appearance of labia majora can, again, vary greatly. Some may be flat and hardly visible, and some may bulge out prominently, but ordinarily they are close together and they protect the entrance of the vagina and also the inner lips. During sexual excitement, which again we'll talk about in a future episode, the outer lips will separate and flatten. In women who've had children, however, the outer lips may not open completely just because of the changes to blood flow that can happen after childbirth. If we then move to the labia minora or the inner lips, these are two pigmented hairless folds of skin that are located between those outer lips or the labia majora. These structures, again, vary greatly in shape, but are rich in sensory receptors. There unfortunately is an entire industry at this point based on the idea that some vulva are not attractive, that plastic surgery should be used to correct that problem. People have the right to do whatever they please with their body, but there is clear indications that culture and pressure play a role in that. 
and there is a documentary about this issue called The Perfect Vagina, I believe. So if you want to check that out, I think that's freely available. When sexual arousal does build, there can often be a color change in the inner lips, and this indicates the onset of an orgasm. The star of the show here in the clitoris, the outer lips. The clitoris is where the outer lips merge together to form a single fold of skin over the clitoris, and this is the hood, so it's essentially acts as protection because it's so sensitive. And the clitoris consists of a shaft made of two cavernous bodies which fuse together and a glands composed of a spongy body. Notice that sounds really similar to the penis, and it's because it is. The clitoris and the penis are very analogous or similar in structure. Most of the clitoris shaft will be covered by the hood, but in the unexcited state the glands may be exposed. The glands or the head of the clitoris, the very sensitive part, can vary in size, but it's usually less than 15 millimeters in length. However, when a woman is aroused, that spongy tissue can become engorged with blood and the clitoris may increase quite a bit in size. In later stages of sexual arousal, which we'll talk about in a future time, the clitoris is retracted beneath that hood. And overall, the clitoris is an organ specialized for receiving sexual stimulation, and the glands has a lot of those nerve endings. Direct contact with the glands is usually avoided because of its sensitivity. If we move from the vulva to the vaginal orifice, or the introitus, between the clitoris and the vaginal opening is the urethral orifice, and that's where urine comes out. Unfortunately, unbeknownst to many people, yes, the vagina and the urethra are two different holes in, in people. Yes. The vaginal opening is partly sealed by a membrane, which is known as the hymen. And the hymen has no known physiological function, but has unfortunately gained tremendous psychological and cultural significance. And some contexts and some places have cosmetic surgeons that offer what is called re-virginization treatment, trying to rebuild the, those layers. This hymen or membrane oftentimes is actually accidentally torn or so flexible that it withstands intercourse. There's really a lack of any sort of indicators to suggest that the status of the hymen is in any way related to virginity, even though that's often how people see it. Under normal circumstances, the tearing of the hymen with first intercourse, even when it does happen, is not really traumatic because the individual is often quite happy to be in the circumstances they are in. What does make for painful first intercourses is often things such as increased muscle tension because of anxiety or being feeling unprepared, and also combine this with what are often clumsy penetration attempts by the partner, and it's not often built to be a great experience unrelated to the hymen. The vagina itself is what is traditionally known as the female organ for copulation and the recipient for semen. It also passes periods during the month and also babies during birth. The vagina is ordinarily a collapsed muscular tube, meant to be a place that has the ability to dilate if needed. And the inner lining or the vaginal mucosa is very similar to the inside surface of the mouth. 
The vaginal walls themselves are corrugated, quite stiff, but they are fleshy and soft and respond to hormone changes. Interesting to note, and a, a fact that many people don't know, is that typically only the outer third of the vaginal canal has sensitivity, and the inner third does not appear to have any receptors to touch or pressure, so it's really that first third of the vagina that's quite sensitive. As sexual arousal occurs, there will be small beads of liquid that appear on the internal vagina surface, and these coalesce into what we typically know as vaginal lube. There are obviously individual differences in the production of this lubricant, whereas some can be still quite dry, some women may be very moist, and some may be dripping. The onset of this lubrication can be quite rapid with sufficient sexual stimulation and is very, very similar to that erection that we see in the penis. The diameter of the vaginal canal and its opening can be controlled somewhat by voluntary muscles. There are relatively simple exercises to develop these muscles if there are issues with it. The vagina also has its own built-in defense mechanism against bacteria, but this system can be disrupted by things like prolonged use of antibiotics. When we move to the uterus, projecting into the vaginal cavity towards the extreme end is the uterus. So this is the organ in which the actual fertilized egg when it takes place will develop into a fetus. The uterus is shaped like an inverted pear and it's usually tilted forward but it changes as a result of bladder fullness, sexual arousal, and pregnancy, so it may not necessarily be there. There are multiple layers to the uterus, the most inner layer being the endometrium. The endometrial layer has a lot of glands and a really rich network of blood vessels because it is the structure that's there to feed the fetus when it starts. The middle layer, the myometrium, is really, really well-developed muscle tissue, and this actually serves to move the fetus out of the parent by a series of contractions. And these muscle contractions also serve important functions during orgasm and also breastfeeding. The outer layer of the uterus is called the parametrium, and it is an elastic fibrous coating. The neck of the uterus is called the cervix, and it hangs down into the vagina. The lining of the cervix has special glands which secrete varying amounts of mucus that plugs the opening of the uterus. So this is dependent on your hormonal cycle, whether you're pregnant, all sorts of factors. Moving to ovaries, the ovaries, like the testes, have the dual function of producing germ cells or ova and producing large amounts of typically female hormones. The ovaries are almond-shaped, and they tend to be a bit smaller and lighter than the testes. And unlike the testes, they have no tubes directly leading out of them. I'm going to read this slowly because when people realize that this is what's happening during their period, it's horrifying. The ova, or the egg, leave the organ by rupturing its walls and becoming caught in the fringed ends of the fallopian tubes. And then it gets dragged through the fallopian tubes ruptures its walls. The ovary contains many, 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 many follicles in various stages of development, and each follicle contains one ovum or one egg. 
This means that biological females are born with all the ova that they will ever have. And as the individual matures, a large number of these ovums actually degenerate. Individuals typically have 400,000 ovum at birth, but by puberty there are only about 20 to 60,000 left. The fallopian tubes, which I mentioned in the traumatic rupturing earlier, are the tubes connecting the ovaries with the uterus, and they are about four inches long each. So after leaving the surface of the ovary, when they explode, the ovum must find its way into the opening of the uterine tube. And this process is aided by some sort of mysterious chemical bodily attraction. They can migrate across to find the tube on the opposite side of the body at times. This transport tube is not a hollow tube when you think of a fallopian tube. The inside lining is actually covered with a whole bunch of, of folding tissue that serves to actually nourish the fertilized egg as it's moving through the fallopian tubes. These cilia, those hair-like folds, sweep the ovum towards the uterus, and the sperm are fighting against that sweeping motion in order to actually fertilize that egg within the fallopian tube. And that's because fertilization often occurs within the fallopian tube. The fertilized egg then continues its journey down the tube to the uterus. I would be remiss if I didn't mention breasts here. Strictly speaking, breasts are not part of sex organs, but they are heavily involved and often cited in reproduction, and they are quite a significant erotic object within our culture. They are also erotically sensitive in terms of sexual arousal too. In the biological adult female, each breast tends to consist of lobes or clusters of glandular tissue, and each has a separate duct opening into the nipple, so it's sort of all over. These lobes are separated by loosely packed fibrous and fatty tissues, which gives breasts their softish consistency. The size and the shape of the breast, therefore, is not at all related to the capacity to produce milk or to lactate. The nipple is consistent of smooth muscle, which is contracted when the nipples become erect, and the area around the nipple, called the areola, often becomes darker during pregnancy and may remain dark afterwards. The nipples themselves are very, very richly endowed with nerve endings, which make them highly sensitive for sexual arousal. The erotic appeal of female breasts in particular varies across different cultures and individuals, but in North America in particular, breast size and shape has come to greatly influence individuals' aesthetic and erotic body image. However, it's important to note that there are a lot of individual differences in what people find attractive. The association of size and shape with erotic body image has often led to a lot of breast implantations, especially within North America, and we see the rise of breast implant illness as well, which are uh, a lot more research coming out in recent years showing that there may be a lot of autoimmune issues and other issues related to breast implants, but a lot of it's still sort of on-the-ground research, but I would suggest looking into it if, if it is something you have undertaken or something that you are considering undertaken, because it's always good to have more info. There are also operations which reduce the size of the breasts because individuals with large breasts can have a lot of back, neck, and skin problems. Another aspect that I wanted to talk to as we're talking about human genitalia is introducing intersex genitalia. Intersex is a term that is used for a variety of situations in which a person born 
is born with reproductive or sexual anatomy that doesn't fit the typical boxes of female or male. And I'm saying that with quotation marks because, again, I'm going to talk a lot about what non-structure and function gender means in the future. If we do look to research, we see that about 1.7% of people are born intersex. And to put that into perspective, it is about a 0.3% chance of having identical twins. Physicians always assign infants a legal sex, but that does not mean that is the gender identity that they will grow up to have. Some individuals, some intersex people have genitals or internal sex organs that fall outside the male or female categories, such as a person with both ovarian and testicular tissues, and other intersex people have a combination of chromosomes that are different than the XY. Others have external genitals that don't fall into the typical male-female categories, but their internal organs or hormones do not. Regardless of what we are talking about, if a person's genitals look different from what physicians and nurses expect when they are born, often individuals are assigned and they may not know that they are intersex until later in life, which often happens during puberty. In terms of some ethical considerations, if we talk about intersex surgical operations, there are a number of different surgeries that can occur but it's important to recognize that the United Nations has noted that without an individual's informed consent that intersex surgeries should be considered human rights violations. So this brings up the question of whether it's okay to do these medical procedures on children's bodies when it's not needed for their health. Given that we know that there is a reasonable prevalence of intersex peoples, not that it should change if there was a smaller prevalence, the question remains of whether they should get to decide when they're older if they want treatment or surgery because oftentimes surgery is now done when the individuals are under two years old. That's when most intersex surgeries are done. Intersex people who have come out against medical surgeries during childhood have stated that these are non-life-saving procedures to change natural variations in genital appearance or reproductive anatomy and that these surgeries are connected to ideas about sex and gender and what normal looks like. These surgeries can lead to complications as well as reduce sexual functioning and also emotional and physical consequences if the individual later finds out such a surgery happened and it's not of the gender identity that they are. We do know that about 1 in 2,000 babies are born with a genital difference that a doctor might suggest changing with such surgeries. The question remains of, again, whether that is ethical to do. And I would suggest to look at information that can give you more direct information about intersex people. So one good reference would be the Canadian Centre for Gender and Sexual Diversity, and this has a lot of information that I would recommend. But in finalizing what we're talking about today, I brought up intersex because it's often not discussed when we talk about human genitalia, even though it's such a significant portion. 1.7% is not a small portion of people to be feeling left out of human sexuality when we're discussing it. And the reason we should be discussing it is because this is part of human variation and there is no standard answer to what human genitalia should be. Like all human body parts, genitals come in all shapes and sizes, and all genital tissues tend to be homologous. So this means that they are two things sharing the same origin. The clitoris and the penis are homologous parts when a baby develops. When certain cues from certain hormones cause them to change, 
they then become the penis. Without them, the same structure remains a smaller clitoris. Some individuals who are intersex have something in between. That's really important to consider when we're talking about this because so many individuals are marginalized or have stigma both externalized and internalized because of what we say is normal and we're not even including all of the variations that exist. I think what I will end with is just it is important to remember that individuals have no choice in their anatomy and the chromosomes that they are born with and they should be treated as the whole humans that they are. I am going to probably keep on the vein of human sexuality for a little bit and I will be back next week with a episode. I am also going to record a brief research brief this week about a recent article that came out on sex doll ownership and the psychological characteristics of those who own such dolls and have been really looking forward to this paper. So that'll just be a super short episode that I drop sometime during the week. Those are meant to be about less than 15 minutes and I'm just going to review the big findings from the research in the new research coming out so that I can also keep apprised of it as a clinician in this area. Thanks for listening and I will talk to you soon. If the information in this podcast has been distressing, please see the homepage for resources.